This is Vandana Shiva and you're listening to the Enviro show on Valley Free Radio WXOJLP 103.3 FM Northampton streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org Remember listen to your mother The Enviro show thanks River Valley Co-op Northampton's locally grown food co-op located at 330 North King Street and at 228 Northampton Street in East Hampton. The co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods from produce and cheese to fresh meats and locally baked goods. Everyone is welcome. Open 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. Enviro Show thanks River Valley Co-op for their support. Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason. So ask your doctor if nature is right for you. Now, literally from across the valley and around the world, it's the Enviro Show. WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio, Northampton. Greetings, Earthlings. It's an act for a livable planet Enviro show. I am one of your co-hosts, Dio, and I'm not in the studio with... This is Glenn Ayers. Hi, Glenn. Are you sick and tired of open-ended executive privilege? That's a quote from Zach Porter, executive director of Standing Trees. He returns to the show to discuss the mishandling of our public lands by government and industry. We will discuss some clear-cut examples during the interview segment. 
As usual, we will also bring you along to meet this week's Fool on the Hill and those whose brains are small, as well as a reminder that it's the climate crisis, stupid, and more. But first, it's time for... Revenge of the Critters researcher says giant crabs keep stealing and destroying her cameras. A researcher on Christmas Island, an Australian territory in the Indian Ocean, is losing thousands of dollars worth of camera gear to theft and vandalism. But it's not humans that are to blame. Her gear is being stolen and destroyed by the aptly named robber crab, the world's largest anthropod. Robber crabs, also known as coconut crabs, are extremely common on Christmas Island, and they're known for being both huge and curious. A full-grown crab can be over three feet wide and weigh as much as nine pounds, and they love to drag interesting objects away into the forest for closer inspection. Inspection, huh? I don't know. Maybe they're just tired of being spied on, Glenn. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And they're, that's a terrestrial crab, which is yeah. pretty cool sounding. I wish we had those around here. That's a big crab. <laughs> okay. Fool on the Hill. And nobody seems to like him. The Fool on the Hill. This week's Fool on the Hill is none other than the new House Speaker and noted Bible banger, Representative Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana. He's a climate science skeptic who has, in his short time as Speaker, helped pass a bill to cut renewables funding from the Inflation Reduction Act and is a major recipient of campaign donations from the oil and gas sector. Surprise. John Delgado, a former Baton Rouge Metro Council member who was critical of Johnson when he was still a state rep, said Johnson's climate skepticism is born out of evangelical dispensationalist belief. The idea that the end times herald the second coming of Christ, quote, there are people who just want to see the world burn because they're waiting for the next one, Delgado told Sierra. He explained that those who are eager for the rapture want it, the world, to end sooner, so they're not going to care about the environment. They're not going to care about the coastline. They're not going to care about rising ocean temperatures. When you talk about climate change, Delgado said, he, Johnson, truly doesn't care. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, we don't care about MAGA Mike either, but wait, there's more. Saying he has just given a seminar to a bunch of high school kids in Shreveport, Johnson quotes George Washington and John Adams saying, the first two presidents and other founders, quote, told us that if we didn't maintain those 18th century values, that the Republic would not stand. And this is the condition we find ourselves in today. Close quote. Okay. 
let's see, Glenn, yeah. in the 1700s, women had no rights, right? People of color had no rights. What else? Uh, were they burning witches still in the early 1700s? I don't know. I don't know. But, the, you know, that was certainly during a time period of massive genocide of Native Americans and all kinds of other critters in the western part of the U.S. or the mid part, the Great Plains. So, yeah, you know, that's what they mean when they say make America great again. Let's go back to genocide. So he's a fool, but he's worse. He's a yet another dangerous fool. But let's move on. Oh, how about their brains were small? Yeah, and uh, hopefully they'll die. They were being dumb and slow. They couldn't go with the flow. Their brains were small and they died. On to some other dinosaurs whose brains are small. A public statement signed by more than 1,000 scientists in support of meat production and consumption has numerous links to the livestock industry. The Guardian revealed, and go to the blog and click on that link, the statement has been used to target top EU officials against environmental and health policies and has been endorsed by the EU Agricultural Commissioner. Um, the Dublin Declaration of Scientists on the societal role of livestock, says livestock, quote, are too precious to society to become the victim of simplification, reductionism, or zealotry, and calls for a balanced view of the future of animal agriculture, close quote. Now, one of the authors of the declaration is an economist who called veganism an eating disorder requiring psychological treatment, Glenn. How is your eating disorder? Oh, wow. That is a unique way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah. So let's see. I've been a vegetarian since the mid-70s. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to get some kind of treatment now. Let's move on to the climate crisis. Well, one can only wonder if all 1,000 of those scientists are aware that it's the climate crisis too bad. Are any of them aware that 2023 was most likely the hottest in the past 125,000 years? And this, quote, during the past year, the needles on the climate dashboard for global ice melt, heat waves, ocean temperatures, coral die-offs, floods, droughts are tilted far into the red warning zone. In summer and fall, monthly global temperatures anomaly spike beyond most projections, helping to drive those extremes, and they may not level off anytime soon, says James Hansen, lead author of a study published just this past week in the journal Oxford Open Climate Change. It projects a big jump 
in the rate of warming in the next few decades. And yet, quote, governments are literally doubling down on fossil fuel production. That spells double trouble for people in the planet, said UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Quote, we cannot adjust climate catastrophe without tackling its root cause, fossil fuel dependence, close quote. We can also tie these two things together, which is the fossil fuel orgy that we've been on and the meat consumption orgy, because you could never maintain the kind of factory farming animal agriculture that has been going on for the last 50 years without the fossil fuel industry because of all of the fertilizers that come out of fossil fuels, all of the antibiotic pesticides, herbicides, and the industrial system that so relies on cheap oil. Every single bite of meat is dripping, not only in blood, but in oil and fossil fuels. And so really, when you're having animal-derived foods, you're actually just eating oil. All right. <laughs> there it is. Let's move on to the Environmental Echo Chamber. And we repeat Washington Post's piece on Earth's fresh water getting saltier. Care to guess whose fault that is? Quote, human activities are making the globe saltier specifically in our soils, freshwater, and air, according to a study released Tuesday in the journal Nature Reviews Earth and Environment, the excess salt has already caused serious issues in freshwater supplies in recent decades. So here in the Northeast, with winter approaching, you can bet road salt has something to do with that problem. But the article goes on to point out, quote, over the past 50 years, salt ions have increased in streams and rivers as people have begun using and producing more salts, the study says. The team found that across the globe, about 2.5 billion acres of soil, an area about the size of the U.S., have become saltier. Salt lakes are also drying up and sending saline dust into the air. Close coke. So I was thinking, Glenn, I was thinking of the Roman legions back in the day. They used to spread salt on their perceived enemies' crops so, so that they would fail. Who needs legionnaires? The use of salt like that, widespread use of salt to poison soil, was actually, I think, the first recorded use of herbicides and herbicide. You know, now we have much, much more potent chemicals instead of salt, but that was that was why they were doing that. Uh, it was to make that soil inhospitable for plant growth. Yep. How about an environmental quote of the week? Okay, Marshall listeners, a quote of the week, and this addresses what our guest said at the top of the show. Quote, the truth is that all men having power ought to be mistrusted, close quote. And we spoke earlier about the founding fathers. That was from James Madison. All right, that takes us to our conversation with Zach. 
Yeah, you know, I think that this is a good discussion of a problem that we have here throughout the Northeast, and it really focuses on that phrase, which is open-ended executive privilege. And what we have is we have a system, especially when it comes to forest protection and publicly owned forests, where the executive branch of the government has complete discretion essentially to do whatever they want. And we see that in New Jersey, we see it in Massachusetts, we see it in Vermont. It's the same in New Hampshire. Apparently it's the same in Connecticut. And there's a theme running through the Northeast and that is that we have no state protection for forests except for some small areas that were set aside by some a few visionary people fairly long ago, such as Baxter State Park up in northern Maine around Katahdin Mountain. But otherwise, we have very little or no protected forests in most of the states. The Green Mountains and the White Mountain National Forest would be the exception in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont because those were federally protected state forest lands that are legislatively protected as wilderness areas within the national forest. They're relatively small pieces of the national forest. But in Massachusetts, as the, the recent wildlands in New England report pointed out, we have essentially no permanently protected forest land in the Commonwealth. And the same goes for other states where the executive branch, the governor, the agencies that have been delegated so-called stewardship to responsibly manage these resources, and all of these things are in quotes, of course, that executive branch uses absolute discretion to chop down forests. And so we have a great discussion with Zach Porter about that problem and about what to do to bring some sanity and climate reality back to forest protection in this region. Give it a listen, and then maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more on the other side of the interview. All right. So today on the Enviro Show, we have a return guest with us, Zach Porter from Standing Trees. And Zach's been on the show a few times in the past, and uh, we are really fans of the organizing, especially the organizing that Zach is doing around forest protection and in the, in the Northeast and New England region. And uh, we've known Zach for a, a few years now. That Zach, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your history. And then let's talk about the current efforts region-wide to protect forests for their both their intrinsic value as living entities, as living superorganisms, and also the critical role that protecting forests play in addressing the ongoing climate emergency and especially the biodiversity crisis that we are faced with. 
and that we have to take action if we're going to maintain a livable planet, you know, a livable planet and also a livable New England or Northeast and what that looks like as far as maintaining biodiversity, increasing the amount of wilderness and wildlands that are available and, you know, all of those things. So Zach, welcome to the Enviro Show and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Glenn and Dio. Uh, it's great to be back on the show. Really appreciate the chance to visit with uh, your listeners. And um, I think you summed it up pretty well just now. Uh, if the Northeast US can offer uh, one thing on the kind of global stage when it comes to combating the climate and, and extinction crises, um, it is our you know incredibly resilient uh, ecosystems here that despite being knocked down for several centuries now since European colonization, um, are rapidly uh, rewilding, regaining their health, and will continue to strengthen if we can just get out of their way. And uh, that is the mission of Standing Trees. We are a, an organization focused on uh, you know, rewilding uh, the six New England states with a focus on the public lands, the, especially the state and federal public lands of our six state region, um, and leveraging those lands to overcome those crises. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's the right thing to do at so many different levels. Um, and, 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 and it's something, again, that uh, we can offer up to the whole world. Uh, and in fact, the Northeast has been a leader in that regard uh, for over a century. Um, it, you know, one need only look over to the Adirondacks uh, and the Catskills in New York State uh, to see the power of um, rewilding and allowing uh, natural processes to shape our forests and to, uh, you know, just dramatically um, improve forest health over a relatively short time, um, absorbing tremendous amounts of carbon, producing clean water that we all rely on, and, you know, the highest quality habitat around for our native species. So um, we, we don't need to look very far for great examples, and we can do something similar here in New England, um, but we've got to make a decision as a society that that's what we want to prioritize. So um, we've got some major uh, kind of, uh, you know, choices in the short term um, that can set us on either the right or the wrong path um, for years to come. And at this very moment where we should be taking these cues from, uh, again, our, our, our neighbor to the West and, and, and what was done uh, by amending the New York State Constitution uh, back in the 1890s to protect, uh, you know, much of the public land in that state. Um, here in New England, we're looking at the opposite. We're looking at proposals to dramatically increase the amount of forest destruction, uh, dramatically increase the amount of logging, road building, um, and, and related impacts to public forests in New England. So what is with this disconnect and the incongruity between what we're seeing from our state and federal agencies and the latest science that's coming out? Um, we're trying to make sure that we hold decision makers who are you know, uh, trusted to take care of these lands that belong to each and every one of us, um, holding them accountable. And so um, we're working on uh, policies that will first and foremost protect these lands from impacts like logging, but then also to increase the transparency and the ability of the public to 
um, hold these decision makers to account when they make decisions that are not in the public interest, that are not in keeping with the latest science. Um, and so, you know, that's a big part of this too. Um, and so, you know, it's going to, it's an all hands on deck moment, um, as we all know, with these various crises that we're facing. Um, and there's never been a better time to get involved in these issues because of the, I think the, you know, the, the, the tremendous, you know, attention on the importance of restoring old growth forests. So anyways, lots to talk about. So Zach, I have spent a lot of time in the Adirondacks over the last 10 years or so. And, you know, whenever I want to go to wilderness, that's where I go. I mean, I have spent time in Vermont wilderness and the Green Mountain National Forest. Those are kind of small wilderness areas. They were sort of, they were created from the roadless areas that the Forest Service really didn't want to leave their hands off of. But, you know, Congress forced that to happen. Out in the Adirondacks now, it's been over 100 years of rewilding. And that is really an experiment that has a lot to teach us in that it's pretty amazing when you go out there and spend some time in the Five Ponds Wilderness or the William C. Whitney Wilderness areas, which is where I do a lot of paddling. Those areas are just unbelievable. There, There is nothing to compare them to in the Northeast. I understand now that, you know, there is some attempts to rewild some areas in Maine, such as the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And that was done through private philanthropy, through uh, Roxanne Quimby, who used to own Burt's Bees, buying up land and then donating. I think it was, I, I can't remember if it was almost 70,000 acres of land that she bought and you know donated to the federal government along with something like $40 million or $20 million and then a, a pledge to raise an additional $20 million and an endowment for that national monument, which is right next to Baxter, just to the east of Baxter State Park, which itself is, I think, the, the largest wilderness area in northern New England, and that's a state park in Maine. But, you know, those are the examples, I think, of what can be done in a lot of New England, in that there's a lot of industrial lands, uh, former timber industrial lands that have just been on these short, short rotations for pulpwood production. And now the effort is kind of trying to switch them over to biomass production to, to ship the trees and ship them over to Europe for renewable energy credits. And that is just a level of insanity that I can't wrap my mind around because we have the potential on one hand to allow these lands to reforest or rewild, as you said, or as uh, Bill Mumon and others have termed it, proforestation. And so I think that, you know, rewilding and proforestation should be the focus of all of our state agencies in, in the New England area, because we have this potential now to create something great out of the leftovers, the recovering land, you know, the kind of juvenile forests that have returned after the, you know, the sheep uh, fever that spread through New England 
and the abandonment of the of the you know pastures and and uh, agricultural lands that were left yeah. behind. So that's right. You know, how well, do we get how do we get the public involved in that kind of vision, that kind of effort? Yeah, well, you know, just to build on what you were saying there, so um, it's absolutely true that we need uh, you know more investment, both private investment, like you. Uh, you know, mentioned from people of, of means like Roxanne Quimby. I mean, um, so many of our uh, cherished national parks, for example, are the result of, of philanthropy um, and, you know, lands that were transferred to public ownership. And and we absolutely need more of that. And we need it on a grand scale. And there are groups like Restore the North Woods and others that have been advocating for a vast Maine Woods National Park for years. And we should jump on that opportunity. Um but I, I think I, you know, what maybe is less well known, and I, and I can't explain why, but shouldn't be, uh, you know, seen as, um, you know, second class at all, is simply taking the public land that we have and putting it into different management, which would cost us almost nothing. In fact, it might even save us a, a, a boatload of money that we are currently wasting on logging our public lands, um, typically at, uh, you know, more cost to taxpayers than we get back. And public lands are, you know, a, a minority of lands in the North, in, in the six New England states. It's about 11% of uh, the six state New England region. Um, however, on average, those lands are the healthiest forests that we have in New England. And we can see that in the amount of carbon that is stored in our public lands. On average, 30% more carbon is stored in public forests in New England than in private forests. That number climbs uh, in places like Maine, where uh, the you know private lands have been logged so heavily over the years that the uh, average above ground carbon is, is much less uh, on private lands than it is on, on public lands. And so, yes, we should... Uh, you know, jump on the chance to, um, you know, buy up these over uh, overused and abused forests on private timberlands. Um, but we really have much lower hanging fruit available to us. And it doesn't take, you know, the generosity of millionaires or billionaires. Um, it, it takes a change in our mindset and our appreciation, our, you know, desire to leverage lands that are already theoretically, uh, supposed to benefit the public good, um, you know, take those lands and put them into use that really does benefit the public for the long run. And if we took those 11% of public lands in New England and put them on a different path, we would have a much different landscape than we have today. And we would be leveraging, you know, these incredible uh, ecosystems that we have here in a way that really makes a difference on the global stage. So, um, you know what we're advocating for at Sanding Trees, first and foremost, is let's let's get after this low hanging fruit. Let's make sure that public lands are actually working for the public good. And um, you know we we we've got huge opportunities to uh, take steps in the right direction with uh, things like the climate oriented forest management uh, process that's playing out in Massachusetts right now, which has a public meeting coming up on Tuesday, uh, November fourteenth at 6.30 p.m. where the public is invited to weigh in on that process. Um, there is a uh, an opportunity to weigh in on a 12,000 acre logging project in 
the Green Mountain National Forest called the Telephone Gap Project. There will be a comment period on that logging project in the very near future. So stay tuned for a chance to weigh in on that. Um, and, and there are projects popping up left and right on, on you know, the state lands, on the White Mountain National Forest as well. All of these are critical opportunities for people to weigh in. So, you know, and then at the national level, I'll just say that, again, you know, our, our, our federal lands in particular, um, you know, across the U.S. are a, a reservoir of biodiversity, of carbon, of clean water. Um, and through rulemaking, um, this is a way that the Forest Service can um, change its management of these you know, lands, 150 some odd million acres of, of national forest lands across the country. And we are proposing, along with our partners across the U.S., that we protect all mature forests on Forest Service land. And what is a mature forest? A mature forest is a forest that is, um, you know, kind of a stage below old growth. And many forests in the Northeast start to acquire the characteristics of an older forest as young as 80 years of age. We're starting to see the development of, uh, you know, down woody debris on a forest floor, of the gaps in a canopy. What we're saying is as soon as those uh, you know, signs of maturity um, are, are you know, coming on in a, in, a, in a forest across the U.S., we should be putting that forest on a different path than what the Forest Service currently does, which is to cut them down. Um, we need to make sure that these are the forests that are allowed to grow old. And that would, if we were to, to, to promulgate a rule that protected these mature forests, we could put millions of acres of forest land across the U.S., uh, on a, a much different path. And it would be a change on the scale of what was done in 2001 when the roadless rule was promulgated by the Forest Service, when about 56 million acres of Forest Service lands were protected, largely you know, protected from logging and road building. So we've got a, a kind of a generational opportunity here to um, put another third of our you know, national forest system on a path to growing old. And uh, that would have huge uh, benefits for the Green and White Mountain National Forest, where we have a wealth of mature forest, the highest concentrations of mature forest in the Northeast. So, um, he, you know, big opportunities from the local to the national right now for people to speak up and uh, make sure that, you know, it doesn't matter if you have deep pockets um, or not, you can make a big difference for the future of our, of our landscape. So, Zach. Dio, Dio here. I'm glad you brought up uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Our new uh, governor and the administration gives the people the impression that, uh, you know, they're being progressive with regard to the climate and biodiversity issues, when in fact it's business as usual, uh, especially when it comes to public lands. Are you finding this same dynamic elsewhere in the Northeast? Absolutely. Um the, the sad thing is that all of the buzzwords of the day have uh, made their way into the common lingo of the timber industry and, uh, you know, their, their uh, supporters and enablers in, in state and federal, federal government. So we hear words like, um, you know, climate focused forestry or uh, creating a more resilient 
forest or increasing the diversity of our forests, um, you know, all the time. Uh, and these are words that should set off alarm bells for any uh, listeners to this program. If you see a state or federal government making the case that logging is going to benefit the biodiversity or the uh, or any other kind of diversity of a forest, um, you know, look look a little more closely at what they're talking about. Um, I'll give you an example from our national forests where they're making the case that clear cuts are beneficial for forest diversity, and their argument is that we need more quote, young forests on our landscape. Um, well, we have plenty of young forest in the Northeast. And what we're doing when we go in and build roads into what are intact, mature forests um, and cut down, you know, what's been growing in many cases for 100 years, in some cases, 150 years um, since agricultural abandonment, is we are removing all of the carbon that has been stored up in, in, in those forests over that time period. We're foregoing the carbon that would be acquired uh, in the years to come. We're introducing invasive species that, you know, would have otherwise had very little chance of making their way into these interior forest blocks. Um, we are creating, you know, soil compaction and water quality issues with additional runoff and sedimentation. Um, you know, all of this in the name of some kind of uh, artificial diversity at a scale that would never occur in nature. Um, you know, the kinds of, of damage caused by, uh, you know, this, you know, modern day logging, um, it's just, there's there's no analog in, to what would happen under natural processes. And so um, we have to be on the lookout for, you know, what, is, what are they really saying when they're talking about, um, you know, how this is going to benefit us in terms of climate change or, or, or biodiversity. Um, when it comes to carbon, there's this oft-repeated myth that a younger forest is better than a, a mature forest for sequestering carbon. Uh, it couldn't be farther from the truth. And we have science just in the last year from uh, Ed Faison and his colleagues, um, Ed's at the Highstead Foundation, doing remarkable research into the ability of wildland forests to sequester carbon and showing that um, we need to, to just abandon this myth that young forests are better than old when it comes to carbon sequestration. And we already knew that older forests are superior at carbon storage. Now we have ample evidence that the same is true for uh, carbon absorption. So uh, there's just no excuses anymore. The very best thing that we can do is to leave these forests alone. And that goes for not just carbon, but water quality, biodiversity, you name it. Um, and that's not to say that we don't all use wood products and that we don't need wood products. Of course we do. But the problem is our current way of managing the forested landscape, which is to seek those products from every corner of the forest. If we keep getting wood products from all of our forests, we end up with the lowest common denominator forest everywhere. And what we need to do is make sure that a significant portion of the landscape is allowed to grow old because those are natural forests. And what we see out the window today are not forests, they're trees. They're trees that someday might become a forest if we just let them. And um, we've got to draw lines on the map because that's how it works. To make a long-term commitment, you've got to cordon areas off and, and make sure that they will be allowed to grow old and, and kind of regain those uh, traits of a healthy ecosystem here in the Northeast. 
So, Zach, one of the the false narratives that we've been fed for a long time, especially here in Massachusetts, is that we need to be more concerned about keeping working forests um, from being converted into housing developments because that's the major threat to our forests. And, and it turns out that logging is the greatest threat to forests beyond, beyond just the private public forest uh, separation. On public lands, by far, logging is the greatest threat to those lands. And, and what they're trying to do here in Massachusetts is turn our public lands into working forests. It's a form of privatization of the commons so that instead of having wild lands for everyone to enjoy, they're going to have essentially tree farms that are dedicated to timber production. You know, yeah, there'll be a few hiking trails here and there, and maybe there'll be a campground. But I just recently traveled down to Plymouth, Massachusetts, to the Miles Standish State Forest, which is, a, I think, over 15,000 acres of intact forest, contiguous land. It's one of the largest state forest holdings in Massachusetts. And I was, I was floored by the way that they're abusing that area and removing, I mean, seriously, they're removing 90 to 95% of the trees and they call it forest restoration. And that's in an area, that entire unit of the state forest is designated as a reserve. And that's the highest level of protection that we have in our state forest system. That's a reserve. And yet they're through using loopholes and other mechanisms, they're able to remove 95% of the trees and leave behind a barren wasteland that will require perpetual maintenance, intensive maintenance in order to hold succession at bay. And right. so well, those are the kinds of things that you're saying, well, you know, they're using these words like forest restoration is another term that they're abusing to say to, to fool the public. I mean, the, you know, people don't know that they're really being misled by these state agencies when, in fact, they have a real motive here. And that is to privatize our publicly owned forests and convert them into, uh, you know, a private profit centered mechanism for turning the assets that we collectively own over to private interests. And that's something that I'm sure it's the same thing on the Green Mountain National Forest. It's the same thing on Vermont State Forest. I know it's the exact same thing in New, in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, where they're doing the same kinds of logging so that it, it benefits the 0.01% of the population. And 99.9% .9 of the population is losing out on that equation. And so how do folks... How do folks understand what's really going on here and how can they get involved with, you know, your group? I, I know I'm I'm very, very involved with the situation here in Massachusetts. And I'm also involved in northern New Jersey, where I grew up as a as a kid, um, you know, and, and I'm trying to work with those folks to fight the same 
you know, privatization of the public forests for private profit. So, you know, how do folks get involved in that? You know, how do they get involved with standing trees? And, you know, what kind of things can they do working with standing trees? Like, I know that folks out in the in the southeast area, they're going out and they're using drones and, you know, they're doing field work and they're documenting uh, what's happening out there to the to the, you know, very globally rare coastal pine barrens area in in Massachusetts. But what can folks do with standing trees? How can they get involved? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, first, let me say that, um, you know, we submitted extensive comments on this Massachusetts process that's going on right now and um, did so in conjunction with Save Mass Forests and Restore the North Woods. But um, the, uh, you know, there's still opportunity for the public to engage in, you know, it's only a sham process if we let it be a sham process. Um, and so, you know, as, as frustrated as we might be with the uh, kind of status quo um, appearance of things and, you know, as frustrated as we might be with the vocabulary that's used and and kind of the, um, the, the hiding of what's really going on, um, if we don't call our state agency officials out um, then it will only get worse. And so that's why, again, it's critical for people to um, speak up and to remind the uh, you know, Massachusetts officials here that a reserve is a reserve. Um, you know, we, we reminded them of their own definition of a reserve in the comments that we submitted um, and of the dictionary's definition of, of, of a reserve, um, none of which include the kind of, of, of abusive you know, management that you just mentioned that is going on in Miles Standish right now and elsewhere. Um, and one of the things that's missing from state uh, land management in I, I quite possibly every New England state, but at the very least, a majority of New England states, um, is that there are no rules governing the way state agencies operate. And this gets a little wonky, but, you know, statute laws um, typically only set kind of overall uh, purposes and direction for state agency management. They don't put into action the kind of fine details of how lands will be managed and what the public process will be, how the public will be involved in shaping the management of state lands. And so what we have is a kind of open-ended adventure in executive privilege on almost all state lands in the Northeast and quite possibly across the whole country. Rules are at a minimum. Um, rules are what make sure that public land is actually public. Um, right now we have public land that's kind of masquerading as public land. And as you said, it is really serving the interests of um, you know, people in the timber industry, um, which oftentimes sells land to the public and gets rid of its tax burden and then continues to log those lands going forward, uh, winning contracts from state government to, you know, cut down trees at, again, a loss to taxpayers. And we're seeing that on state and federal lands um, in Vermont, where, you know, companies that had owned vast tracts of timberland um, have, have, you know, ostensibly given that land over to public ownership um, only to continue logging those lands um, in the future, in some cases with minimal competition uh, to log. 
And so, you know, this is this is just bad government. Um, and it is a you know failure of leadership right now to not stand up to those kinds of abuses. And so we do need to call out um, our, our elected and appointed officials. And, you know, that's that's the state of affairs on our uh, state public lands today, uh, by and large. Um, there is very little controlling what state agencies are able to do. And uh, just recently, we saw the Connecticut um, State Land Management Agency, you know, propose massive salvage logging. This is preemptive salvage logging, um, you know, in areas where they were raising the alarm about uh, insect infestations. Um, and there is almost nothing the public can do to rein in these state agencies when they, you know, devise a plan to cut and uh, remove, you know, timber from these, uh, you know, really important ecosystems where, you know, and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, these, uh, these natural processes, um, the, the, you know, whether it's, whether it's invasive species or not, um, will do less damage than the logging itself. And um, so, you know, it's just so important for us to, again, not only put our state lands on a path to growing old through changing their kind of overarching management paradigm, but it's also extremely important for us to regain the tools, you know, to hold state agencies accountable so that they're actually functioning like public lands. Um, and right now, you know, the commissioners of you know, uh, forest parks and recreation in Vermont and their equivalents in other states um, really are, are kind of, you know, uh, the kings or the queens of the, you know, public land domain. And that's not how our democracy should work. That's not how public lands should function. Let's remind our state governments who really owns that land and make sure that the public good comes first. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, Zach, thanks so much for all the great uh, work that you do, the great organizing and activism. Indeed. Thank you yeah, both. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Okay, we are back. And that was great. It's always good to hear from Zach. He's got so much energy and so articulate in matters of executive privilege and forests. Yeah, he's great. I really appreciate his organizing around this issue. He's, I think he's doing a great job and we need to check in with him regularly because we're all part of a, you know, a big groundswell of many groups, many individuals trying to permanently protect our publicly owned forests in the Northeast and what we need and what, you know, report after report says is we need large, intact permanently protected forests, such as climate reserves, climate and biodiversity reserves, and wilderness areas, essentially. We have no wilderness areas in Massachusetts, and we need to start designating our state-owned forests as wilderness preserves here in Massachusetts, completely off-limits to commercial exploitation and industrial scale logging, especially in areas that should be the most highly protected lands in the world. You know, really? And 
those are the watershed protection lands around the Quabbin Reservoir. Yeah, it used to be called the Accidental Wilderness, but you know that's now a joke because they are logging the hell out of the Quabbin Reservoir watershed, and that really needs to stop. We need to get into a position in this state of proforestation and rewilding to address the climate emergency. So get involved, folks. Agitate. Join other groups that are working on this issue. And, you know, we can do this, but it's going to take all of us working together. Right. And as Thoreau famously said, in wilderness is the preservation of the world. Uh, How about we move on to the bus stop billboard? I'll start out with Wednesday, November 15th at 10 a.m., Rally in the Park, No More Toxic Gas. Join us for a rally in Kings Cove Park, so that's on the South Shore, in opposition to the operation of Enbridge's compressor station. We are gathering to say, no more toxic gas. The compressor station is spewing toxicity into the community despite the lack of need for the gas or facility and while a key license is being appealed in court. We will gather and speak out against the compressor and any efforts to expand the burning of frack gas. Light refreshments will be provided. Parking is available near the park and go to the blog, click on the link. There's a map for where you can park and further information. Right, and then Thursday, November 16th at 3 p.m., it's Gas Leaks Webinar. And uh, that'll be exploring gas leaks at a high level, what they mean for safety and climate change, and how we can quantify the extent of the leakage. And then the webinar will zero in on one community, Richmond, Virginia, that is looking to understand just how bad the gas leak situation is in their city and how they can hold their local utility accountable for fixing it. And finally, it'll explore the financials of gas infrastructure where companies are building new gas lines to prop prop up old aging infrastructure in an unsustainable system where the bills are coming due. Go to the blog, click on the link for that uh, webinar. And then on Thursday, November 16th, 6 to 7 p.m., coexisting humanely with the wildlife at the Cummington Community House, and that's on 33 Main Street in Cummington. Elizabeth Magner from the MSPCA in Boston will be giving the talk. We are surrounded with the wildlife, including bears, coyotes, foxes, turkeys, fisher cats, raccoons, and much more. How do we coexist humanely with these wonderful neighbors? Please help spread the word. And we hope to see you in November. So that's a face-to-face event. All right. And then Saturday, November 18th at 9 a.m., it's the Mother's Rebellion Climate Circle. That'll be at the Amherst Farmers Market on the Common in Amherst, Mass. Be part of the third global Mother's Rebellion for Climate Justice. And for more info on that, go to uh, www.xrwesternmass.org or mothersrebellion.com. And then on Saturday, November 18th, 3 to 5 p.m., Living Rivers Flow Downstream, a case for the Connecticut River ecosystem at the Shea Theater on Avenue A in Great Falls. But 
Turner's Falls, as it's often called, there'll be testimony from those knowledgeable about and affected by First Light's Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station, including our own Glenn Ayers. A panel of respected judges will render findings, entertainment during the judges' deliberations. You want information on that? Go to ctriverdefenders at gmail.com. All right, November 19th, 25th, or 26th, 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. It's the Invasive Plant Clipping Parties at Greening, being held by Greening Greenfield. And they're inviting everyone to join them for a clipping party to start the process of getting rid of invasive burning bush around Poetsy Tower and Highland Park in Greenfield. So for more information, go to the blog, click on the link for that. And then finally, Tuesday, November 28th, 6 to 7 p.m., you're invited to a webinar about the proposed expansion of the Hanscom Private Jet Service and its disastrous climate effects in Massachusetts. If the proposed expansion goes ahead, private jet emissions from Hanscom alone could cancel up to 70% of the climate benefits from all the solar PV ever installed in Massachusetts. While our cities and towns are trying to drastically decrease our carbon footprint, Massport and Runway Realty are planning to expand theirs at Hanscom. This is chiefly for luxury trips to resort destinations for the privileged few with enormous cumulative costs to the climate and the vulnerable many. Go to the blog, click on the link for that. That's about it. Yeah, that's that's plenty of stuff to do. Get involved, folks. Just, yep. you know, pick a few things and jump in and take action. Yep, and there's always more events because we uh, check the blog almost daily to update it. So that's it for this show. And I know that there's one more thing to remind Enviro Show listeners. What is it, Glenn? You know? Remember to listen to your mother. Exactly. Okay, this is Dio saying adios. And I'm Glenn Ayers. Stay active. I am Mother Earth, and I approve of this message.